Good afternoon, friends. It's good to see you. Carry on with chewing. It's, it's, it's okay. One of the things that has struck me over the last couple of decades is if you open a theology textbook today, um, you might want to turn it down a little bit. I have preacher voice. I used to pastor less than an hour from here, four Methodist churches. So, you know, the fourth time the sermon was reasonably good, right? <laughs> right. What has struck me about looking at theology textbooks is they don't deal with the ordinary life of the Christian. They deal with eschatology, Christology, pneumatology, and every other ology you can imagine. But what they don't deal with is any of, whoa, back up, horse. There we go. They don't much deal with any of these things, which is the substance of the day-to-day life of not only lay people, but most clergy people as well. So I decided to do something about this. I decided to write a series of little books called Kingdom Perspective Books on worship and work and money and rest and play and study and ministry and spiritual formation. Each of them under about 200 pages, so not a hard read, but for both the educated layperson as well as the clergy person. Because, frankly, and especially without cultural support, as our culture loses its Judeo-Christian ethos, Frankly, people do not think theologically or ethically about their day-to-day life. They make decisions about where they're going to worship, when they're going to rest, what kind of job they're going to do, and a host of other things based on no practical Christian considerations that has to do with theology or ethics. So, I wrote this series of books, the first of which was We Have Seen His Glory on worship, in order to force us to integrate into our theology and ethical criteria and um, perspectives, thinking about the ordinary life from a profoundly Christian and biblical perspective. What a concept. And the way I wanted to do that is to get us to think from a kingdom perspective about this. And what I mean is that if you really believe that God's saving reign has broken into human history, can I get a witness? How many believe this? Hopefully every hand goes up, right? Okay, if you really believe this, then you also believe what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, where he says the form of this world is passing away. And that should make a difference as to how you view marriage and work and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. He says Christians are called to live as if not, not to attach to the institutions of this world. But the proof that we are not there and we have forgotten this eschatological perspective called a kingdom perspective is that when we talk about a family church, we mean a church that nurtures nuclear families. This is not what the New Testament means when it calls each other brothers and sisters. The issue was that in the early church, the church was a family. It didn't exist 
for the existence of physical families. The physical family served the spiritual family, not the other way around, but we have put the emphasis on the wrong syllable. So I wanted us to get back to a place where we could look at a kingdom perspective on all these subjects, think about them eschatologically in terms of the fact that the Holy Spirit and Christ and the Heavenly Father are working in our midst now to change all things and create new creatures in Christ. How should this affect the way we look at things like work? So today, we will be dealing with just one of these topics, which is this topic, work. And I don't have a monitor, so I'm going to have to do some turning here. Um, this is a sign I actually saw at a Methodist church, not a Baptist church, because uh, you'll notice the spelling is not so good, right? So North Carolina Methodist Church, it says, I like work. It fascinates me. I can sit and watch it for hours. Spend some time with millennials. Ask them some questions about how they feel about work and how they are making decisions about what major they're going to have in college. Why are you taking this major? Well, so I can get a job after college. And why this particular major and that particular job? Well, because I'll make more money that way. It's a very non-theological way to make decisions about your career in life. Here's another one I kind of like. God is looking down on us and says, I suppose the thing I enjoy most is having the ability to work from home. Except God is not just working from home. He is wherever two or more are gathered. He's in our midst. And he cares about the quality of our work. He cares about the excellence with which we pursue it. Here's another one I wish I'd seen somewhere. Usually when I get to a seminary library these days, people have got iPods going and they may be talking on the cell phone, they're drinking their Starbucks coffee, and what is not happening is this, right? We need to have God's eye view of work, not just a human view of work. So, problem. Too little serious biblical reflection on what we do with most of our time. And this means too little Christian Reflection on all these subjects that I've mentioned, work, rest, play, study, relating. And what I am striving for is some balance in your life. Because guess what? You need to do all of these things, right? Almost all of them, every Christian needs to do most of the time. This is the facts. But how we think about these things is often not very biblical. Um, when I started doing the research and writing for this, some of these subjects were so underrepresented in terms of theological discourse that I could find like one or two books ever written in human history on the subject. For example, how about a theology of play? We are sports crazy in this culture. Guess what? There has been one doctoral dissertation done on a theology of play at Duke, just down the road from here. It was Bill Johnson's. And one major theologian who ever reflected on play, seriously, Jürgen Moltmann's little book, An Eschatological View of Play. That's it. 
Not an important subject. Oh, really? Ask your children who are sports crazy whether this is an important subject or not and whether you ought to think about this in a Christian way. You see, play is inherently eschatological. It has a goal. It's leading on with a purpose. Hopefully to what? Victory. Isn't that where human history is going? Isn't that the outcome that we hope for all of us? Play foreshadows the end when things do come to an end and hopefully to a happy resolution. But as we all know, there will be winners and there will be losers. And how you play now matters then. You see, one of the reasons there is such a hue and outcry about what I would call cheating at play or illegal play is because, frankly, our values in our society have gotten to the point where we care far more about the ethics of our games than we care about the ethics of our politicians. And it's a shameful place for our society to be. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't enjoy play because play, in essence, gives us a sense of joy and direction and something to root for, which in this state, you have a lot to think about. Now, let's deal with some misconceptions. Let's consider this one. It's Monday morning. It's time to go to work. Unless, of course, you're a pastor in which Monday is your day off right after Sunday. How many of you ever have heard a layperson sort of in jest say to you, well, must not be too hard when you only have to work one day a week. <laughs> yeah, right. Not exactly. My four little churches down in Coleridge never said that to me. They knew better because I'd get in the car on Monday morning and have to visit 16 hospitals in the Piedmont area of North Carolina where my folks went because my congregations were increasingly aging. I had 40 funerals in 44 months. I thought I was going to bury my four rural churches. I got really good at funerals. But the truth of the matter is, friends, that I didn't know how to help them think practically, theologically, and ethically about their work. And some of the work they were doing was not ethical, as in growing tobacco. I remember the day I gave a sermon on tobacco. After the service was over, I could just, I knew the tobacco farmers were going to corner me. They came up to me, and you know what they said? Bless their hearts. They said, Dr. Witherington, you are absolutely right. If I could find another cash crop that I could support my family with, even be it soybeans, I would do it. Because I know you're right that this is not a helpful or healthy product. I went, all right. I made my point. Now they are thinking theologically about their work and ethically too. Do we really think theologically and ethically about our work? 
about what we're doing and whether it matters. Do we work to live or do we live to work? Now, in this culture, there are a lot of people who live to work. When I do a presentation like this for doctors and lawyers and they introduce themselves, I, you know, I greet them and they greet me and I say, who are you? And, and their first response often is not to give me their name, but I'm a doctor. No, I didn't ask, what do you do? I asked, who are you? That is, their identity is so bound up in their work that they have a hard time distinguishing work from being. I had a colleague who had a coffee cup at Ashland Seminary that read like this. At the top it said, to be is to do, Plato. Below that it said, to do is to be, Aristotle. Below that it said, doobie doobie do, Frank Sinatra. What is the relationship between being and doing? Are we working to live or are we living to work? Inquiring minds want to know. Here's another one. When people actually do clear their throat and think theologically about work, sometimes they view work as a necessary evil. Well, this is what I got to do to make a living. You see, that's all wrong. Go back to Genesis 1 and 2. Work is not the curse. The laboriousness of work, labor pains, according to Genesis 3, for both the man and the woman, is the curse. But work itself was given to Adam from day one. Tend the garden. Take care of it. Fill the earth and subdue it. The creation order mandate. Work, friends, is not a necessary evil. Unless, of course, you're doing a kind of work that is inherently evil. Like, oh, I don't know, working for the North Carolina Lottery Association a profession that robs the poor of what little money they have in the hopes that they'll hit a jackpot. One of the things I can tell you about growing up in North Carolina is that the Methodists and the Baptists were death in taxes against gambling in any form in this state in the 50s and 60s and 70s and 80s. But something dramatically changed when we got to the 90s. And what changed was the Christian influence on general politics and society began to wane. And then all kinds of things became okay and permissible that before we realized, we realized were something evil that destroys the souls of people who participate in these things. We're in a bad way, friends. And if we don't do a better job of thinking about the theology of work, we're going to allow all kinds of categories of work to count as okay for Christians to do. And they're often not. Maybe you've never thought about it this way, 
But God is a worker. God is a worker. Remember when Jesus says in the gospel, God has been working from the beginning. He's always working and I'm working too, says Jesus. There is nothing inherently wrong with good work. See, part of the problem may be for us as Protestants that we have been reared to think salvation is by grace through faith, not by works, and work is works. This would be also a theological mistake. Good works does not equal saving yourself, although there are some people who have tried to save themselves by good works. There is an important place in your theological vocabulary for an adequate theology and ethic of work. It's important. And the model for what you should do is God the worker, God the gardener, for one thing. God is regularly depicted as always working, even by Jesus. And while we're at it, that thing in Genesis where it says that God finished all of those works of creation and then did what? Yeah, bad translation. It means ceased from creative activity. It doesn't mean, oh, I'm pooped out. I need some rest. As if the almighty God could poop himself out. Our concept of rest is nothing like God's concept of rest. In the book of Hebrews, we are promised that we shall enter his rest. And we're not talking about snoozing in the afterlife. You see, there is this relationship between work and rest that even God participates in. So not only do you need to understand God the worker, you need to understand God the rester. That is the person who takes time to enjoy his creation. Because it says at the end of the creation account, and God surveyed what he had made, and behold, it was tov ma'ov. It was very good. You will notice, however, it doesn't say it was perfect. One of the things that God created was, of course, fallible human beings. And then there was that snake in the garden as well. But that's a story for another day. We need to understand God's perspective on work and rest. Now, some of us think, if I can just squeeze into heaven through the back door, I'm good. Is that really the way you want to look at the afterlife? Or would you rather hear Jesus say, well done, good and faithful servant, inherit the kingdom. You see, what you do in this life matters. It's part of the ministry of Jesus Christ and we must do it well. And that means we must evaluate our work as something that is important. And that should affect all our decisions about what kind of work and the quality of work we're going to do. I had a student at Ashland Seminary who was language challenged. He was one of those students who was praying that Pentecost would happen to him all over again. You know, that moment in human history where 
the disciples miraculously spoke in foreign languages to all kinds of people. But my student, Jeff, was language challenged. And so the first time he took Hebrew, he failed. And his district superintendent in our church came to him and said, you know, you can go to this seminary brand X down the road. They don't require languages. You can still get your M and MDiv and be a good Methodist pastor. And he said, no, I want to do this to the best of my ability, even though I'm no good at languages. So he took it again. And this time, by the hair of his chinny-chin-chin, he passed with a D plus. It was closer to a D plus than a C minus, but he passed. Now, for him, that was the best work he could do in Hebrew, given the toolbox he had to work with. And when he crossed the stage and got his MDiv, the whole faculty stood up and applauded him because he didn't take the easy way out. He took the time to do the work and became a good pastor. And he was the better pastor because of his ethics and approach to work. Bishop Duffy it was many, for many years the bishop in uh, the Redbird Conference in Appalachian part of Kentucky. And he sent two of his preacher boys from the mountains of uh, Kentucky to Candler School of Theology at Emory in Atlanta. After about two months, Bishop Cannon, who was then the dean at Candler School of Theology, called up Bishop Duffy and I said, I'm, he said, I'm going to have to send these two preacher boys back to you. They're making like D pluses and C minuses in their courses and I don't really think they're going to cut it. And Bishop Duffy said, please do not send them back to me without a degree. I've got some D plus and C minus churches up here that need them. This is not just funny. This is true. The truth of the matter is, dear friends, that God wants us to do the best we can with the ability he has given us and do it with both hands and have a proper theology of work in the process. So let's go back to the beginning and think through work just one step at a time. Work is part of the original plan, the original plan for all of us. It is not punishment for sin. It is not the curse which plagues us. Here's what God said. Fill the earth and subdue it. Tend the garden. But balance is required. What was the curse? Not fleas and ticks and flies despite this wonderful mosaic. No. Did you notice that we are told that God didn't curse us? He cursed the ground so that there would be toil in our work. God loved us so much that even from the beginning, he wanted us to still be able to work even in the face of the curse. There was peril now in both the man's work and the woman's work, labor pains. And the earth 
felt it as well. One of my favorite passages is Romans 8. And in Romans 8, Paul says, reflecting on the creation order, he says God subjected the whole of creation to futility such that all of creation is groaning, longing for the day of our liberation, not just the liberation of you and me, but the liberation of the earth. Because friends, we're not just promised a new you and a new me, we're promised a new heaven and a new what? Earth. Let me tell you right now, every Christian should be a conservationist. Every Christian should be committed to creation care. That's part of our ethical responsibility to take care of this world that God has given us as a foreshadowing of the new creation which is yet to come. It's not our job and it, it will not happen that we will be able to rescue the world from all pollution. But it is our job to take a stand on those issues and foreshadow a better world that God is going to bring in. That is our job. It's part of our work. For the creation waits with eager longing, standing on tiptoes for the revealing of the children of God, for the creation was subjected to futility by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and will obtain the freedom of the glory of God's children. Friends, don't you want to go there? Don't you want to see a day when disease and decay and death are over with? When sin and suffering and sorrow are no more? Isn't that where we're going? And shouldn't our work be working towards that end? I spend a lot of time with doctors. The older you get, the more you do, just so you know. One of my favorite doctors is a British Methodist doctor from England. And he told the story of a miracle cure for a particular kind of cancer that was discovered in a laboratory in London. And the owner of the lab was, got up before the BBC and was taking credit for this wonder drug that they had found. And, when the reporters questioned him about it, he was very vague about what its real nature was, what was his composition, how was it discovered. And one of the BBC reporters got suspicious. So he went to the lab and began to ask the lab workers, well, who really discovered this cure? There was an elderly man in the back of the lab who had been working on compounds for years and years and studying things under the microscope and all of that. And the reporter said, the inside skinny, the inside rumor is that you're the one who really discovered this cure. The man said, yes, I guess you could say that. And the reporter said, doesn't it bother you that the head of the lab is getting the credit and you're not getting the credit? And he said, I am a Christian. And what matters is not who gets the credit. What matters is who gets the cure. Dear friends, this is not about you enhancing your CV and your credentials in the work that you do. The question is, who's getting the cure from the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ through your work? That's what matters.
That's the end product you're striving for, not better recognition by your congregation. To what end do we do our work? God's plan for creation was not futility. It was fertility. You may remember, be fruitful and multiply. Think about that for a minute. Sometimes when I think about the future, when Christ comes back and the dead in Christ are raised, I want you to think about that for a minute. All of the Christians from all of human history raised at once. And if I'm reading 1 Corinthians 15 and Revelation 20 right, what Paul says is that the dead in Christ will be raised first. And the rest will be raised considerably later. You know what's going to happen when the dead in Christ are all raised first? Suddenly Christians are going to be in the majority all over this world everywhere. Kaboom. Did you ever think about that? And why? Because there's still work to be done after Jesus comes back. We're told in 1 Corinthians 15, Jesus must put under his feet all of these other things that have to be overcome before the new heaven and the new earth can actually come. John Wesley, in his vision, in a magnificent sermon called The General Spread of the Gospel, says what will happen when Jesus comes back is that the good news of Jesus Christ will spread throughout the earth like the waters cover the sea. What a day that will be, to say the least. God has come back to claim his earth, and we will still have good work to do, even in the kingdom. I like this quote from Brother Kipling. He says, Our England is a garden, and as such gardens are not made by sitting in the shade. My wife is a gardener, she's a botanist, she's a biology, she teaches at Asbury University. And let me tell you, the 200 native plants we have planted in various gardens in our backyard, they require a lot of weeding, a lot of work. Even work that is pleasant is hard work. Even work that's aesthetically pleasing is hard work. What does it mean to be created in God's image. When the author of Ephesians tells us about this, and I take it to be St. Paul, he says, we have been created in Christ for what? For good works. I want you to think about that for a minute. Jesus, when he tells the parable of the sheep and goats, says... Inasmuch as you have done it unto one of the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you've done it unto me. For when I was hungry, you gave me food. And when I was thirsty, you gave me drink. And when I was naked, you clothed me. And when I was in prison, you visited me. And they said, Lord, when have we ever seen you in these conditions? And Jesus said, inasmuch as you have done it unto one of the least of these, you see, it's no good just doing the works of piety unless you're also going to do the good works of charity. It's no good just offering people 
the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ if what they really need on that spot is a cup of cold water, a place to stay, and some clothes on their back. You need the whole gospel for the whole world, for the whole person to become whole. Not just justification, but sanctification. Not just salvation by grace, but work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For God is working in you to will and to do. What does it mean to say we have been created in God's image? There have been many opinions about this. But obviously, it has to involve that we are the many creators, M-I-N-I, creators, and the many governors of God's earth. Fill the earth and subdue it, says the Lord. Like God, we have the capacity to be creators of other human beings. Like God, we have the capacity to rule in such a way that not only humans thrive, but even nature thrives as well. That was God's intent. Being and doing is intertwined. But if you define yourself simply as what you do, you've forgotten that you have sacred worth just by being created in the image of God. If you want to know why society gives permission for all kinds of abortions, it's because they've completely lost their theology of all of us being created in the image of God and inherently from conception of sacred worth. Can I get an amen? You see, we have cheapened life. On my watch and your watch, we are cheapening it every day. We have coarsened our culture where it's even possible for our leaders to be so corrupt and so crude and so rude that all they're really capable of doing is channeling our fear and our anger. We don't need leaders like that. We need leaders like Jesus Christ. The truth of the matter is, friends, that we are facing some difficult and dark days. And if you don't have an adequate theology of the work that you're going to do and the ethics of that work, then God help us all. The church will continue to shrink. The culture will continue to go south. And we will be living in a very uncomfortable place where we need more and more Maylocks. That's the truth. Work is not our salvation. Work is not a curse. It was James, the very brother of Jesus, who said, faith without what? Works is dead. This is in the Bible. It's just not in Paul. But you need to preach this too. Faith without good works is dead. It's lifeless. It's not a good example. So, let's think about the balance if we can. Let's think about calling, gifting, vocation. Mark Twain put it this way, work that is really a man's own work is play and not work at all. I don't know if you've ever felt that way, 
But as a preacher and as a teacher and as a writer, I love what I do. I consider it a blessing and a privilege to do what I do. But you know what? I've known plenty of carpenters and plumbers and other kinds of folks who get joy out of the creating and the solving of problems that they get to do, and rightly so. There is a difference between having a calling on your life and having a vocation that you're good at. Vocation has to do with either natural or developed talents. Me, I'm no good at plumbing. I've tried it, not so good, right? There are people that have a natural ability for this and they have developed skills in doing it. That's a vocation, but that's not a calling. There's a difference. A calling, according to the New Testament, is a call to the ministry of Jesus Christ in some form. And there are lots of forms it takes. For example, there can be a call to the ministry of hospitality, what the New Testament calls xenophilia, the love of strangers. That's a calling, not merely a vocation. What has happened is we have mixed up vocation and calling. These are not the same thing. It's like the difference between somebody who has a musical talent and somebody who has a spiritual gift for music. These are not the same thing. There are plenty of secular people with musical talent out there wazoo. That doesn't mean that God has called them and spiritually gifted them to do what they're doing. Vocation is one thing. Calling is another. But work done well into God's glory is ministry. It's a sacred, not a secular task. You remember the myth of Sisyphus? He was given the task of continually pushing this rock up the hill. And then what happened when he almost got to the top? It went down to the bottom and he had to push it up the hill again. I want to tell you now that even if your work that you do here at the school or in the parish or teaching somewhere or in the home feels like this day after day, that in the sight of God and in the counsel of God, no work is wasted that is done for the glory of God and the edification of human beings. Let me say that again. Though the world may never recognize you, it doesn't matter who gets the credit. It matters who gets the cure. No work is wasted when it is done for God's glory and to the edification and help of other human beings. These are the truths. So, I would say, work hard. Rest thoroughly. Worship with vigor. Study hard. Play hard. Do everything with your whole heart to the glory of God and the edification of those around you. And people will rise up and call you blessed. And at the end, you will hear what really matters when you enter the kingdom. Well done, good and faithful servant. Inherit the kingdom. Thank you very much.